Shalom and welcome to Product Nation, a weekly podcast by product managers in Silicon Valley covering how tech products get created and executed by some of the most accomplished product experts in the world. I'm Ofer Barav, and today with me my co-host Nir Paz. We welcome Omri Dor. Hi Nir, machadash. Nothing much, actually. Well, we'll be moving pretty soon, so we're moving somewhere local that finds termites in our place. So it's the year 2020, so something has to go wrong. Oh, no! <laughs> we just found out 10 days ago, and we were looking for a new place, but it's okay. We'll get it done. What's new with you? Better news. Well, this is viral. Who thought of termites, right? We thought of everything, but not of termites. Good for you. Omri, shalom. This is your show. But before you get started about your background, tell us something fun. Something fun. Wow. Okay. Yesterday, I spent the whole day traveling upstate New York to see the fall foliage. So all the trees are just, all the leaves become red and orange and purple and yellow. It looks like the whole forest is on fire. I went there with my girlfriend, hiked for the whole day, and it's just gorgeous. The nature that this country has, the U.S., is just out of this world. Gorgeous. You're based out of Manhattan otherwise? or That's true, yeah. I live in Manhattan, an area called Nolita, for the past two years. Very cool. And then I think you mentioned that you went also to the South. Can you talk about that? Yeah. So you know what? COVID started, like everyone else, we were stuck at home, working from home. And for me, I'm still pretty new to the state, so I haven't seen a lot of the country. So we just grabbed an SUV, rented a car, started driving south where the country was still open. At that time, New York was under lockdown, but all of the southern states were kind of open. So we went to Charlotte and Savannah and North Carolina and South Carolina, and we would just skip from one kind of cabin and Airbnb to another, working for a week somewhere and then driving to the next destination. We, we must have spent a month and a half working from another person's home. That's really well, cool. Lots of barbecue. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's really fun. It's really just fun. out of curiosity, it was your first time in the South. What's your impression about the Southern US? How different is it? It's incredible. The hospitality is incredible. The food is incredible. Gorgeous nature, gorgeous little towns. Right? Although we drove back through Washington, D.C. right at the height of the massive riots that happened there. So we took an Airbnb Whoa. in Washington, D.C. and just stayed indoors because the outside street was just full of people rioting, breaking all the windows. That was on the way back from our wow. trip to the South. People have the most amazing war stories during Corona. It's just nuts. So, Omri, you work for Obligo. Can you tell us just briefly about your background? What got you into Obligo? And then let's get started with product market fit. Sure. So, Omri, I was born in Yavne, led a very, very boring life. One of a time, 8200, went into Technion, where I studied electric engineering and physics, went on wow. to work for Google and Facebook as a software engineer in New York and in London, and then I worked for a cybersecurity company in Israel. And then about three years ago, I founded this company, Obligo, alongside my older brother, Roy, together with the Door Brothers, and moved to New York, and here I am. But there's a benefit when you have somebody, Roy, on your team, because it's a return on investment. So you always okay, need there. to ask that question, right? <laughs> <laughs> so can you tell us like a little bit about what Obligo does? Yeah, absolutely. So you know how when you check into a hotel, they kind of swipe your card. They don't take a deposit per se, but they have the pre-authorization to charge your card. just in case you steal something from the minibar or you do something nasty to the room, et cetera. And, and this is how hotels have been working for decades. We're trying to get the same concept into the residential apartment rental space. So imagine you're renting an apartment in New York, you're about to move in. Instead of paying a $5,000 cash deposit, instead you just connect your bank account and your landlord has the authority to charge you up to that number, but you don't actually have to dish out the cash. That's our product. We work with the property managers and landlords that have thousands and even ten- tens of thousands of units. So it's a B2B kind of enterprise product. Product, and uh, it's going pretty well so far. Cool. So, Dole, can you talk about how you navigated a very red ocean type of environment and how I'm m- most interested in how you found a product market fit? Maybe talk about some failures along the way. Sure. So I'm going to say red ocean, that phrase, uh, I think you can find yourself with the red ocean in several different dimensions. It's not 
not that every landlord in the US has a solution for deposit-free renting. So it's clearly a, a blue ocean from that perspective. It's a red ocean potentially from another perspective, and that is the mind share of the landlord and property manager, because the amount of products that are being pitched to landlords and property managers is just out of this world. So can you get to the top of their agenda? This is where you're kind of finding a red ocean mentality, but definitely within the space of security deposit alternatives, it is very much actually a blue ocean. So it's really about racing to the top of the mind share of the landlord and the property manager. You asked how we found product market fit and we started this basically in the garage, right? So myself and my older brother sitting in not actually our underwear, but you can think of it as sitting in our underwear and trying to research different markets around the world and trying to, we were sending a lot of surveys at the time for different renters and talking to different landlords, just trying to find that fit. And eventually we found what we thought was a fit for this particular product in London, of all places, we thought that we were going to launch in, in the UK. And we were actually pretty heavily invested in that. We really researched the whole legal framework and compliance and regulation and banking laws and everything to make it work in the UK. And then, oh, wait, uh, before you go there, I'm not clear on what was the problem that you set out to try to uh, solve for? The most ancient problem in the world, which is uh, trust. You're trying to establish trust between renters and landlords, and they fear and loathe each other like crazy. The landlord is really fearful that the renter is going to trash the place. The renter is fearful that the landlord is going to not, not fix anything, raise rent, maybe evict them. Uh, a lot of fear. And today, until now, the way to resolve that fear was through the security deposit, which for the landlord is a way to maybe feel a little bit more secure. So we're trying to establish that trust without the security deposit, and we're in a sense acting like a trusted third party. So I would say this is a trust problem that we're trying to solve. And our role here is to be a trusted third party so that we can bridge that trust gap. So what is the solution right now? Is this an escrow? How do you mitigate that risk? In terms of technology, well, let's imagine you have a building and, and you're a landlord and I, and I tell you, hey, stop working with the security deposit. Just don't take them anymore. The kind of technology that you're going to need to solve the problem is number one, you need to be really good at underwriting underwriting, understanding the risk of the renter to make sure that you're not letting bad renters in the door because a bad renter plus not having a security deposit, that's a recipe to lose a lot of money. So you've got to be really good at screening and underwriting. The next part of the technology is how do you maintain accountability once the renter left the apartment? So if the renter does indeed owe money to the landlord, how do you make sure that they end up paying? And that is a combination of some technology around payment pre-authorization that I mentioned before, the hotel. But there's more layers to that because you've got to offer them installments, which means we are actually also a credit company. And you've got to build this whole automation of sending the messages and emails and, and text messages. And the copy has to be just right because you want to be friendly and you want to encourage them to pay what they owe. So there's a whole aspect of the product there that has to do with collection, collecting debt at the end of the lease. And it is these two pieces of IP, the screening and the collection, that together make up uh, Obligo's platform. We sell this platform to the landlord. And from that moment on, the landlord uses that every time a renter needs to move in. The landlord sends a link to the renter. The renter goes through an experience. We explain to them what is this concept of the pre-authorization and of this hotel model. And we get the renter to approve and agree. And then the renter gives us access to their bank account where we can not only get access to draw money from the bank account, but we can even see all the information there through open banking. And then assuming that what we see in the bank account is good, the renter is sufficiently liquid, they have money and they have income, then we approve that renter to be a deposit-free renter. They can move in to the apartment and that's how the landlord is working. So it sounds a lot of what an insurance company would do, right? From that perspective, almost? The, very interesting. So there, there are some commonalities with insurance and the way we see it at Obligo, and by the way, there are insurance companies in this space who offer insurance as a solution to allow renters to rent without a deposit. 
the problem that you have with insurance is there's actually two problems. To understand why there might why insurance is not necessarily the answer, we need to understand why landlords take deposits in the first place. They take them because they want to be secure. They want to have the money in case something bad happened. But that's just one reason. The two other reasons, which are very important, is they take it for screening purposes. So when I take your deposit off air, I want to see that you have money. If you cannot afford the deposit, maybe you shouldn't be living here. I want to make sure you have the money. That's why I'm asking you for a deposit. The third reason is I want you to be accountable. If I have your deposit, then you now have skin in the game. You're going to take good care of the apartment. If I took a naive kind of insurance approach and I were to say, okay, offer no problem. You don't want to pay a deposit? Sure. Just buy an insurance policy. And me as the insurer, I'm going to cover your landlord in case, in case there's any damages. The problem with that is, number one, now the landlord doesn't know that you even can afford to pay a deposit. This is sort of a negative signal. You might not have the money. That makes you a riskier renter. Plus, there's a problem with accountability, right? Because now I'm covering you for damages. So maybe now you're going to have a party in the apartment. So these two aspects are exactly why at Obligo, we think of ourselves as a screening company. We need to make sure you're a good renter before we let you rent. And the whole part about accountability and collection. Because if something happens, we do fully intend you to pay. It is not our work to cover you. We do want you to pay if you damage something. So I have a quick question about the customer themselves, because it sounds like the owners are the ones that are paying you, mm-hmm. but their alternative is basically ask for a check, which may be simpler. So if they don't need to pay you anything, they just ask for a check, hold a check in an envelope and just wait for until the end of the contract and decide if to take it or not. What are the benefits that you give the owners that is better for just than claiming a check? Great question. So so maybe first I'll give a little bit of background. In Israel, I know it's common to just give a check to the landlord and the landlord isn't even going to cash that check. In the US, when you pay a deposit, you actually pay the money. It comes out of your account and it goes into the landlord's account. Right. Now, in the past, this was great for the landlord. They had so much money. If I had 100 units with $3,000 per unit, I had $300,000. I can use that money to buy a new building or to put a down payment to buy a new building. So this used to be very lucrative for the landlord. Over time, what happened is that regulation made it harder and harder and harder to manage and keep those deposits. So for instance, if I'm in New York, I'm going to have to open a different deposit account for every renter. Because I open an account for them, I need their W-9 form because I'm going to have to report this account from a KYC compliance perspective, right? I was got to pay them interest. If I pay them interest, then that's capital gains that they've made. They need to pay tax for that. So we've got to send them a 1099 form. So this became a nightmare of administrative burden. And of course, the landlord can't touch the money, unlike in the past. The money is in escrow. The landlord has no authority to touch the money. So the deposits became from some sort of asset, basically into a liability. The landlord only sees a lot of suffering and pain from managing these deposits. So that's one reason why they would want to eliminate deposits. The other reason is different. The residential rental market became very competitive. As you have tools like Yach Time in Israel, here in New York, we would say street easy. And generally, we would say apartments.com or Zillow or, or Trulia or anywhere that you can compare apartments. The market became so efficient at pricing these units, right? If you have a gym in the building, that's an extra $20 per rent. If you have a pool in the building, it's an extra $30. You have a doorman or no? You have an elevator or no? These things became very efficient. And as soon as things became that competitive, landlords realized pretty quickly that if they take their deposit requirement away, they're going to see some kind of upside in demand, right? So if my building and your building are identical, but I'm not taking deposits and you are, and this is a $5,000 deposit, that's going to make a difference in my ability to rent out my units more quickly. So there's an upside in terms of market attractiveness 
if I stop taking deposits, but there's also a downside. Obligo allows you to enjoy that upside of marketing deposit for units without suffering from the downside of having lower quality renters and dealing with a lot of bad debt, having to chase after them and create a collection department, etc. Okay, what's the pricing plan? Where do you get your money from, basically, as a company? So we have a couple of models. One model is that the landlord pays for this essentially as a service, essentially as, as a SaaS platform, and then they enjoy deposit-free renting throughout the building. The other model is that we give the renters the option to opt in and out of the service. What happens then is that as the renters go through our flow, the deposit-free system is presented as the default system. It doesn't incur a fee. But if they prefer, they can also pay a normal cash deposit, and they can do that through our platform. So from the landlord's perspective, it's still the same the same process. They always send the same link to their renters, and then the renters can choose either be deposit-free and pay the fee to Obligo, or they can choose to pay a normal cash deposit online through Obligo oh, without a fee. Got it. So, so in the end of the day, you're saying that this deposit is a headache. You found a way to basically mitigate for that, give people the option to do it without one. If they do choose this money to be invested as a deposit, how do you channel that money then since it's it requires all these bureaucratic things for example in New York yeah we're we're a fully fledged payment processor at the end of the day so we need to take the money from the renter transmit it to the landlord and take care of a lot of or at least some of the paperwork we need to make sure that we have all the data required by regulation from the renter let me try to rephrase it mm -hmm. that money is mm -hmm. parked what does that money do who does it belong to does it accrue oh, interest what yeah. happens to it? We, we we just transfer it to the landlord we don't actually keep the money Many Many reasons for why that is, but we basically manage the money remotely, if you will, transmitting it back and forth, also returning deposits to the renters at the end. So we kind of control the payment system, but we don't hold the money in our bank account. We hold it in the landlord's designated bank account. Got it. Okay, so quick question. So let, let's say an apartment is 3K per month. I'm imagining that, what, is it first and last? Another 6K would be normally asked for in normal conditions for deposit. If somebody chooses not to make that deposit in this example, what what likely are they going to pay as a renter to you to yeah. compensate for that? So there's a range of prices. It ranges from 5% of the deposit size all the way up to around 12% for the more riskier portfolios. So to give you just an example, if you, instead of paying a $3,000 deposit, instead you keep that deposit and you pay, let's say 6%, you can now take that deposit and invest it in something that's probably gonna give you a better return than yeah. the five or 6%. Got it. So it'll be $180 a one-time fee in this example or a monthly or what is it? That's a whole can of worms of product experimentation with what converts people better monthly or upfront or upfront and continues monthly or upfront and that's it and a lot of experimentation is being done there so maybe before that if we can just take a step back if you can walk us through the achievement of product market fit it's a long process mm -hmm. there's a lot of iterations if you can just pick some highlights because we obviously don't have time to go over everything let's say in three minutes what are some of the highlights of that process and most importantly what are some milestones where you had a aha mm -hmm. moment and you said this is it Okay, let me think about that. So, by the way, I did mention the company today is 23 employees. The number of millions that we've raised is in the higher teens. It's not publicly announced yet, but we're going to be able to publish that soon. But if I go back to the pre-seed era, I think, and I had to make a chart of the milestones, the first milestone was to do a proper survey of renters and see how much are they willing to pay, and as a result, understand whether there's money or not, right? That, that's simple enough. The second thing that we've done, and I remember this, this was one of the most instructive experiences that I had. We went to London, which is where we thought we were going to launch the product. We ended up launching it in New York. And I actually spent two days 
literally knocking on the door of every rental brokerage in the city, all right, for, for two days. And every time I came in, I said, hey, I'm an entrepreneur from Israel and I have this idea and I want to get your feedback. And I would show them an explainer video that we made. And then I would ask them to sign a letter of intent saying that they would use a product if it existed. And I did a couple of series of meetings and sometimes I was able to meet someone low level and then meet his manager. And after about a week of this kind of activity, we ended up getting LOIs from pretty respectable directors of leasing from, from some pretty large property management companies in London. And I think that was what enabled us to raise the first seed, is having that pile of papers, the 12 LOIs that we could just put on the VC's desk and say, these people want it, call them right now. Maybe even especially in London, as an Israeli entrepreneur coming in and just knocking on doors, what was it that you told these directors of apartment leasing companies that made them go, wow, I can sign that LOI? At that time, the most important thing was to listen, right? Because I wasn't trying to really pitch them because I didn't really have a product. I just wanted to hear their genuine reactions. And, and that's what I did. I showed them an explainer video. I asked questions about the kind of problems that they had. And the more questions I asked, the more they kind of said, yeah, actually, this would really solve this whole problem. And there's three people here and that's all they do. And we can probably... Was it back then already at a place where you said, hey, with us, you don't have to worry about asking for a deposit. We take care of that for you. Or was it more of a, we screen the people so that we make sure that people People don't come and make problems. What was the phrase that you said that caught their attention? The phrase that we said basically is deposit-free renting and deposit-free properties. You can have a deposit-free property. That paradigm is done. No more deposits. It's a deposit-free property. You're going to work so much efficiently. It's going to be so attractive for renters. We're going to take care of the details. That's what it cool. was. And then the way you stumbled on it was through knocking on doors or the way you stumbled on it was even before that through some other means? How did you get to that one? Stumbled upon the idea? Yeah, I mean, you don't wake up in the morning one day in Manhattan going, yawn and stretch and yeah, I'm going to do, do <laughs> yeah. deposit-free. How did you even get into that? Why did you even pick apartments? Walk us through the whole process from there to deposit-free. Yeah, yeah. That was actually a very interesting kind of product market fit process because the original idea was actually for Israel. We thought what we were going to do is create an app in Israel that would allow the renter and the landlord to communicate, keep records of things that need to be fixed, sign the contract, make electronic payments, transfer the deposit back and forth, basically do that on an app. Because today, as you guys know, in Israel, every landlord and every renter come up with their own their own contract and nothing is, is organized. So we started with that concept because we said this is a gap, this needs to exist which is a very bad way to think about products, but this product needs to exist, quote unquote, so let's build it. And then we thought, okay, so how does this product make money? And we tried different value propositions out of that out of that suite. And we, th we felt, okay, what is the one thing here that people are willing to pay for? And it turned out people were willing to pay for the privilege of not paying the deposit. And this was just trial and error. We just really broke it down to different value properties. And we said, okay, this thing, this thing people will pay for. All the other things which are really nice and cool, but this people will pay for. And then we said, okay, if that's the case, let's strip away everything everything else, this product, this company from now on, all that it's doing is eliminating the need for security deposits because this is something that we saw people are willing to pay for. So really focused it. So that was about the product. But now there was a problem with the market because we did the math and we tried to see how much money would we possibly make if all of Israel was using this kind of deposit-free service. It turned out not a lot. We started to investigate other countries. When we went to other countries, we found that there's many different products and, and kind of fully digitized rental experiences, which even more made us realize we need to make our product very thin so that it can fit into the keyhole, if you will. You can't build an elephant. You've got to do something very narrow. And so as we transition to this other product, we realize Israel is not our market.
market. We investigated other markets. We got the best fit in London is what we thought at the time. Eventually, the best fit was in New York. And the more we went into international waters, the more we realized the product has to be even more thin than we could have ever imagined. And we realized that just this very small problem of deposits is worth multiple billions of dollars in the US and is very hard to do. Just to solve this is so hard. I think what's really interesting as you're telling this is to remember that you're working in a very difficult marketplace type of environment. There's two sides to it, right? And so what's yeah. interesting here is that the first side you went through is from the renter, which is you felt their pain point. I'm just trying to kind of like sum it up in a sentence, but basically you found a pain point in the renter side. The pain point is people don't want to come up with thousands of shekels of dollars, whatever, upfront as a deposit because they feel, I think there is a word for that in Hebrew, you feel a frail, right? You feel <laughs> you're being taken advantage of, right? Yeah, yeah you, you've got money that's being held up somewhere. You obviously blame the landlord because you're thinking, ah, they're getting rich over me, right? Even if they haven't cashed it. So I think it's just, it's a psychological concept. So you went for that. It's probably from the renter's perspective, less about not coming up with the money. It's necessarily, I'm just saying, it's more of a psychological sort of barrier where it's, I don't want my money to be used up in ways that I cannot benefit. And so you come in and say, hey, listen, we got a solution for you. Pay us 6% or thereabouts, and we'll solve that for you. From the renter perspective, they're like, okay, I'm in control because I can choose to pay the deposit. And now I'm flipping to the other side of the marketplace, which is the landlord. The landlord just doesn't want a headache. So if you come to them and you say, hey, we're, we'll filter the person for you and we'll guarantee sort of, right? Well, what's the guarantee you give them? Is it two months or what is the guarantee? It's a, whatever, whatever it is that they ask. If they're used to asking for one month deposit, we're going to provide a one month guarantee. Yeah. So we just match whatever they need and we price accordingly. The reason I ask is I'm thinking about a company that I mentored before out of Brazil on the Google Launchpad Accelerator. Mm. They're called Fifth Floor in Portuguese and they are doing something in this world. Over there, there's <laughs> something in Brazil even more severe where you have to put, I don't know, a whole year's worth of deposit <laughs> up front. That's how they yeah. used to do it, coupled with the fact that in Brazil, they don't have reporting agencies like they do here in the States where they can say, oh, I know what your credit score is, right? So yeah. you take those two pain points and how they solved for it is they basically came to the landlord, kind of like you, and they said, hey, we're going to give you a person that will vet. And they find ways to do it. They, they vet them through multiple screens that they have. They, they take care of that. And then they also, though, uh, I think, take care of the whole stack. So taking photos of the apartment. So it's, it's like it's A to Z a solution. It's a portal. You come in, you choose, you leaf through everything, you find your apartment yeah, that and, and you get it online in one snap. Can you talk maybe a little about, it's always interesting to think about how other markets do it. And by the way, that company is massive. They're, they, they, wow. they really hit product. I actually haven't heard of them. I yeah. yeah. I'll, I'll send you some links there. afterwards but, and I can connect you with the founders. They're doing amazing. And so it, it's really interesting to see what works for different markets. Clearly that pain that you're referring to is one that cuts across probably every nation out there. What I'm curious about is now that we know how you found your product market fit, if you can talk about maybe what's the future for you? Where do you see the next five, 10 years even? That's a great question. I, I think at the end of the day, our vision is for Obligo to become essentially the new standard for how trust is established between the renter and the landlord. Today, trust is established by you giving a filthy envelope full of cash. 
We think that the way to establish trust is through Obligo. Obligo vets the renter. Obligo also vets the landlord. Very important. We screen the landlord. They need to give us historical deposit claim data, etc. We don't work with slumlords. So we make sure it's a good renter. We make sure it's a good landlord. And then we assume some of the risk of that transaction. And we use the best technology available from open banking to AI to make sure we do a good job at it. I think this is going to be standard in the future. The world of filthy envelopes full of cash is going away and people are going to have something that resembles an instant kind of check-in experience. And that's what we're trying to build. Can you talk maybe or share about a few of the pushbacks that you got, let's say from investors who thought either early on investors who said, no way, this is not ever going to work or and or other things that people thought that were crazy. And you as mm. a founder had to say, hey, folks, this is what we're focusing on. Thanks, but no thanks. Yeah. We're focusing on this one. Well, you know, a lot of investors in the old days, when we were raising money, blockchain was all the rage. So everyone was like, oh, so and you're doing this on the blockchain, right? And we were like, no, this has nothing to do with blockchain. What are you talking about? They kept pushing us to do blockchain, telling us it would be easier to raise money. They were probably right, by the way. We should have said that it's blockchain to raise more money at that time, because at that time you wow. said blockchain and you would have raised $20 million. No questions asked. So that's about that. I think one of the biggest things that people were afraid of, investors were afraid of, is eventually renter conversions. How many renters are actually going to take the deal? And they kept asking questions like, so how many people have a lot of credit debt? How many of these Americans have so much debt that they would resort to a product like this? And all of them said, I would never take it. A lot of people said, I would never pay this. I would never pay any fee because I'm just going to pay the deposit. I got cash. Everything's fine. I'm going to pay the deposit. And why would anyone take this? I don't understand. So of course, we ran some surveys. The surveys indicated that people will take it, but investors still felt unsure. And me and my brother both, we are big believers in the power of words, in the power of copy and microcopy and marketing and positioning. And what we tried to tell them is that they would absolutely take the product if it was pitched to them properly. There's two pitches here. One of them is offer. I know times are hard and you have no cash and you're crippled with debt. If you'd like, you can pay this premium to me to help you out of this hard time. And then you hear this kind of pitch and you think, I'm actually, it's not that bad for me. I'm actually pretty good financially. I'm solid. This product is not for me. Instead, here's the pitch. Offer great news. This is a modern building that uses a deposit-free system. If you qualify to it, if you have good credit and you have a lot of money in your bank account and you're an upstanding citizen, you won't have to pay a security deposit. That's the pitch. It's just where it is. Risky renters need to pay security deposits. Good renters with a high credit rating that have a lot of money don't need to pay a security deposit. People respond strongly to that pitch. And that's why we convert today 70% 70% of every renter that moves in to our properties is because we pitch it that way. We, we don't tell them you're weak, you're, you're, you can't afford to pay a deposit. Of course you can't pay the deposit. Yeah, something on the owner's side too, I mean, coming from a fintech world is OFAC screening and things that yeah. relates to regulation. Technically, you're not allowed to pay, to receive payments from any citizens from OFAC flagged countries. OFAC screening is very expensive. Today, renters or, or property owners, they don't really do these screenings mostly the private ones at least the non-professional owners if you take that risk away from them by the way any fine is two hundred and fifty thousand dollars or something like that if you take money from an OFAC citizen if you take that risk away from them and they understand the risk that's a huge benefit I think yeah, KYC and the need to check who the renter is is very important, especially in today's world when maybe 20% of the renters are coming from other countries. So you've got to yeah. have an international underwriting capacity doing OFAC 
checks is one of them using ID verification, right? If you have a right. passport from another country, we need to be able to verify that this is actually you. So there's definitely mm -hmm. some components there. I wouldn't necessarily say that this is the top of mind of the landlord, top KYC of renters, yeah. but, but it's definitely part of the value that, that, that we bring yeah. both to the landlord and to ourselves. We need to make sure that this renter is legit. And part of the ways that we do that is all these different screening systems, including OFAC. By the way, I think the OFAC database is free. I don't think it actually costs money to check, assuming it you is, have the developers to, to implement. Yeah, you don't need to it pay. It is free, to but uh, it's being updated pretty frequently. And if you're using an old one, and yeah. you're doing correctly, but you're still using an old one, you will still pay a fine. And that's why you want to roll the responsibility for a third party or whatever that does that for you and assume the responsibility for miscalculating or missing. Well, yeah, yeah. When you say that 30% do not convert, what's the reason they don't convert normally? What's the top reason? Well, that's uh, that's exactly what the product team is doing at Obligo, right? We need to watch these guys' sessions, see their NPS scores, uh, investigate exactly what was in their experience, call them, sometimes give them an Amazon gift card to get their time on the phone to really hear what was the reason. A lot of times, it's actually a bad product experience. Not a lot of times, but some of the times. And that's when we get really, wait, what? And then we see the session, we see that this person had all these errors and we're like, what the hell happened here? This really shouldn't happen. Interesting topic, actually. So what, what can you give us an yeah. example of something that you recently switched and you had a big spike of improvement? Big spike in improvement. Yeah, we added to the wizard, our wizard, the experience that the renter is getting became over time a little bit longer because initially it was just connect your bank account. And then we said, actually connect your bank account and verify your ID. And then we said, actually connect your bank account, verify your ID and consent to a background and, and credit check. So it kind of got a little bit longer. And so what we did, we did an A-B test where we just added breadcrumbs. So when you start the wizard, we tell you, hey, here's what's going to happen. You're going to verify your ID. You're going to complete some personal details. You're going to connect your bank account and, and you're going to see the summary, right? And we added a breadcrumbs. And then every time you finish a stage, you are taken back to that breadcrumb page and we show you, okay, this is where you are in the wizard. And then you're going to continue. We A-B tested it. It showed good results. And uh, that's the kind of things that we do to try and optimize for conversion. Wow, it's a very wow, simple, very simple cool. trick. It's not nothing special, really. It's just, just trying to see why are these renters getting confused and trying to optimize. I love breadcrumbs. <laughs> it's nice. I'm not thinking about bait. Here we go. <laughs> That's too yeah, funny. Yeah. Omri, any story about how to hire for the best? What do you do when you interview? What do you notice that has matched your expectations? I think that's a, an interesting question when you interview people. You have a short time frame, just for reference, very short time frame. You have to make a, a decision, a go, no go. What is it that you've seen that has worked? So some of the things I'm going to say are cliche, hire slow, don't make compromises, hire slow. We've had employees that we compromised on before and we had to let them go. It happens. And especially as a first time founder, you make a lot of initial kind of mistakes in hiring and hiring process. Sometimes that can be fixed by letting the same person do something else. And sometimes you got to let them go. Today, we're a little bit more mature. Me, my pet peeve is I love to do live audits, live testing. I want to see the person doing their work in front of me. If it's for marketing, I don't give them an assignment to write an article. I want to see with my own eyes how they write the article in front of my face. If they can't write it in front of my face, it's no good. If it's UX, they need to design the UX in front of my face. They got to write the micro copy. They got to write what's going to be on the button, what's going to be on the email. They need to do it right in front of me. And, and that's why also I tell other uh, team members who do interviews. Even when we hire vendors, by the way, same things. If you want to work with a vendor that's going to work on your AdWords account, they're going to have to do a live audit. I give them access to AdWords and, I'm, and I want to see them in my AdWords 
walk around, tell me, hey, I noticed this, I'm noticing this, I'm noticing that, we should probably work on this thing. Live audits all the way, home assignments, I don't believe in those. That's my pet peeve. Cool. Have you hired anyone products. for product? Anything that you can share with us about product specifically? Yeah, about product. Our CTO, amazing man, genius. Among the many other things that he does, he also essentially leads the product aspect of work in the company. We also have two product managers. One of them is doing more general product funnel from backlog to, to sprints to, to launch to KPIs. One of them is more focused on kind of growth hacking. So tweaking how we convert renters and stuff like that. And I think... What really matters to me when it comes to products, and again, this is my pet peeve, is copy and microcopy and the ability to write compelling text. So if you design a screen and there's a prompt and you're asking the user to add a bit of detail or you're asking them to push a certain button, what's the call to action going to be? What's the text there? What are you running inside the text box? For me, this matters a lot. Not only because I believe it makes an impact on the product experience, but also it impacts the level of independence of this person. Can this person create all these screens and deliver them and ship them to the dev team? Or are they going to have to stop every step of the way to get advice from marketing and advice from this person and advice from that person because they just can't phrase a proper sentence? For me, that's like 50% of the weight I put on writing, copywriting, micro-copywriting abilities. Great. Okay, we're at the very tail end. So in one minute, invent a, a company or product just ah, pick something that's out of the blue that who knows maybe that's the next thing you'll do in the future i have a dream a real dream a significant dream to do to create some kind of company or some kind of app that's gonna really influence democracy externally and you know how they say that the free press is like the fourth branch of government i think you can sort of create a fifth branch of government by creating some kind of system where people's opinions percolate to the top and, and come up in a way that's going to actually influence decision makers. It sounds a little bit naive, it is, but more specifically, I'm thinking about doing something in the world of polling surveys, public opinion combined with some kind of social network where I say, okay, I often don't vote because I can't be bothered, but Offer is such a great guy that I'm actually going to proxy my vote to him and then Offer whenever, whenever he votes, he votes for me too. And you can delegate it as well and create some kind of network that allows politicians to basically see what the public feels about certain things. If done incorrectly, it can be disastrous. If done correctly, I think it can actually bring a lot of balance to the system. And that's kind of a lifelong dream of mine. So maybe when I'm 70, I'm going to start a company around that. The power of question, I think, is one of the most incredible phenomena of being human. And so I yeah. like what you're saying, basically, allowing people to percolate the best questions to the top. Okay, great. Well, I really enjoyed this. Thank you so much. Neil, thank you for your time. And uh, yeah, we're done. All right. Thanks. Thanks.